I had won like something like $40,000. And I had a room there with one of my teammates and we ended up just going into the comp rooms. After five or six hours, we're sleeping. It felt like the middle of the night, but it was about noon. We hear this bang, bang, bang on the door and it was a bunch of casino security they just said, you know what you did, you know, and they, they said, you know, you, you had a really good night at the tables, you know, we hear you win about $40,000, and they said, well, nobody wins that much playing blackjack. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and gamblers. I'm John Reeder. So about a year ago, I was learning to count cards. I like to hang out in casinos, but I was tired of losing, and I thought it might be a fun mental exercise. Also, I should admit that I have a real problem with authority. So this idea that the house always wins is very annoying to me. As I was learning to count, I found this podcast called Gambling with an Edge. There are over 400 episodes, and I got a little obsessed. I ended up listening to most of them. The show is hosted by two longtime professional gamblers, Richard Munchkin and Bob Dancer. The show was formed around their perspectives, so we're going to hear from them later. Each episode features a different gambler talking about their life looking for advantages. So these people are winning money, losing money, trying to figure out how to exploit casino games, getting kicked out of casinos going back into the same casinos they just got kicked out of, and sometimes getting arrested. I started listening because I was curious about card counting, but I kept listening because it was a window into a world of eccentric and interesting people. I was drawn to these stories because on the surface they're about gambling, but they're also about something else, which is, what are you willing to do to live a life on your own terms? So my bankroll, initial bankroll was $3,000. But my thing is uh, having a small bankroll and, you know, grow and, you know, see how it goes instead of, you know, putting a lot of money. So I started with 3000 And the way I played is I would jump around uh, Vegas casinos. Like, you know, I... I make, you know, $100, $200, and I go to another casinos and, you know, make another $100, $200. I do that, like, some days I would do, like, you know, like 10 casinos a day. But it's a very short trip. In the beginning, because the way that I played hit and run, um, I didn't get backed off. But I'm backed off from most of casinos in Vegas now. That was a card counter that goes by Black Asian. She's an attorney by profession. But like the other people we'll hear from, she does not abide convention. She might casually mention the time she was an options trader, or the time she lived in Serbia, or the time she was counting cards in Colombia. So the way I was playing in Vegas, I was able to make 10000 I think roughly in a matter of month. And I had a friend, um, Spartan. He's a great blackjack player, and he saw that I had some potential, and he bankrolled me uh, and trained me. Um, he put his 10000 we combined our you know, money, and I raised the bets. And luckily, uh, you know, I was, I was doing good. 
um, with his guidance, and we kept growing the, the bankroll. So right now, I haven't played for six months because um, actually at the end of the year, like I had a huge loss. I don't think that that stopped me from playing, from going out, you know, risking money again, but it definitely affected me in some way. I'm ashamed, ashamed to admit, like, you know, uh, after I lose a few thousand or like over 20,000 a day, you know, I go home and cry. Pop culture makes card counting seem both too easy and too hard. Movies like Rain Man and 21 give the impression that card counters only win. And that's just not the case. It offers a real edge, but it's a small edge. And so the swings can be dramatic. But those movies also make card counting seem too hard, like you have to be some kind of a genius to do it. To use a sports analogy, card counting is more like shooting free throws than it is like dunking a basketball. Give someone with moderate intelligence enough time to practice, and they could do it. Lori Chang actually played on the infamous MIT blackjack teams. And while her card counting stories are about being smart, she's talking about something else, something we might call street smarts. Being Chinese, and uh, then you have a right to be degenerate. And so I, I often uh, use this um, to my advantage. Um, I remember I was playing um, at the MGM, betting uh, $3,000 a hand. And the count was skyrocketing, right? And, you know, sometimes you remember these uh, uh, the variations, the small counts. And then when it goes too much, and it doesn't happen very often, and the hand, the particular hand is seven against the dealer's five. And I start to say, hold on, let me think. And then I start to look for my cheat sheet. And I pulled out this cheat sheet, and the pit boss walked over. I remember his name is Joe. Um, he looked at me. He goes, well, you want to know how to, how to play seven against a five? I can tell you that. Okay? And I said, well, that's what you white people say. I said, well, I need to look at my books. And I pull out, you know, that card. It looks like a basic strategy. Okay? I looked at it, and it was, like, exactly there. So... And I, then I took out my $3,000. I said, I want to double. I doubled. Of course, I got a 10. And then I got 17. And dealer busted. Okay, I want the hand. And he looked at me. He looked at me in disgust and shake his hand and left. But another white guy sitting at the table rushed over to me and said, let me look at your books. What is, how come your books tell you to double seven against a five? And I'm thinking, I can't let him see this. If he sees this, then, then, then I, 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 I'm exposed. And I said, no, this is my Chinese book. If a white guy looks at this, it loses magic. I haven't been playing for a while because I, I was so hot. But uh, while I was playing uh, hard, I always go to the casino. I walk around. Um, around the whole pit, and then I will observe who's betting what, where, and how much. You know, let's say somebody's betting, well, 10,000. I say, wow, great. Tonight there's uh, action. So I should not sit at that table 
Okay, and、uh, I will sit someplace like next to it or across from it, and、uh, because you know that was also experience. If I sit at that table, you know he doesn't get into trouble. I do because that has all the camera turned on on it. You know if he bets ten thousand a hand, so I know oh today if I bet on five thousand it'd be okay. You know, I'm suing Caesars because you know they sent me invitation, and then I went back there, and then they have me, you know, arrested,、uh, dragged downtown. So,、uh, you know, they can say the security department had me. Eighty-six, but the marketing department sends me two invitations. I thought they missed me. I came back, and they had me arrested. When Lori got to jail, she realized she didn't fit in with the other women in the Las Vegas jail. She was something of a novelty. Now they say, "Hey, what are you in here?" Questions: Where were you whoring?、Uh, I I don't whore.、Uh, so why are you in here? I say, "Oh, I count cars." Hey, this bitch counts cars. Apparently, the thing Lori is talking about, where security kicks her out, but the memo didn't make it to the marketing department. That's a thing that happens. This is a guy that goes by Molded Truths. We get kicked off the of games all the time. It doesn't mean you can't come back to the casino, unless they specifically say you're trespassed. Don't come back, or you'll be arrested. So they never said we were trespassed. Then、uh, a couple months later, I start getting、um, stuff in the mail. Come get a free suite and six hundred dollars of free play. I I actually called in advance. I said, you know, I'm just gonna call and get a confirmation and stuff. And you know, if they say something like we don't want you here or something, you know, just to kind of make sure. So I show up, and then I walk, start walking to the front desk, and these two、uh, casino goons, like security guards, come up on me, and they're—I could tell from the look in their eye that they're up to no good. And then I said, "Look, I'm leaving." And then I started、um, walking towards the door, and they lunged at me, like physically. They grabbed me, and、uh, they started like wrestling with me. <laughs> I mean, it went on for a little while, and they're like, finally, like they got me.、Um, They they put me in handcuffs after a struggle. I started screaming. I'm like, help! Call the police! You know, you know, I'm being kidnapped. And so they're they're like dragging me for the, through the casino. And still, I'm like like I'm I'm like screaming, help! You know, somebody call the police! You know, I'm being kidnapped. I just wanted to cause a scene for their customers. Well, because it was outrageous what they were doing. You know, what they thought they could do to me. If it was a mistake, like if they didn't want me there, they could have just called me right back and be like, "Hey, you know, this was a mistake.、Um, we don't, you know, we don't want you to come in. Don't, don't bother to come in." Or when I came through the door, they could have said that, you know, after inviting me there and confirming it. But instead, they purposely said, "Let him come in, and we're going to do this to him, and we're going to try to get him arrested." So they put me in this room, and finally,、um, you know, after the whole struggle and ordeal, the cops show up and. Uh, once I get to explain to the cops, I said, "Look, I was invited here. Look at the the invite there with my name on it and the confirmation number, and the they took my credit card for a deposit and all that." And the cops just like look at them like, "You idiots! Like, what are you doing? You know, you you have no right to to do anything. You guys invited this guy here." I want to rewind a little because this cat and mouse game has been going on for a long time. To understand modern advantage gambling. It helps to go back to the '60s, when an MIT mathematician named Ed Thorpe released the first book about card counting, titled "Beat the Dealer." I realized that this game was beatable. 
And the basic idea was that the basic strategy I'd used did not keep track of cards. But I, with some fairly simple reasoning, realized that if I kept track of cards, the edge would seesaw back and forth to a rather great extent between the player and the casino, depending on which cards were out of the deck. And it was kind of obvious that if the deck was full of aces and tens, the blackjack bonus would give you a big boost and uh, give you an edge, probably. And if the deck was short in aces and tens, then it would go the other way. So I sat down to calculate all this, first by hand, but it took forever. And then I uh, went to MIT uh, as my year at UCLA was uh, up and my MIT appointment came on stream. And there I learned that I could use a high-speed computer to do the calculations for me much more rapidly than I could ever do them by hand. In fact, I could never finish uh, computers, uh, computations that I outlined by hand. They would have taken uh, thousands of years of my life. So in about a year, I got my results. And the question I asked the computer was, what happens if I take out the four aces or the four twos, the four threes, and so on? And I found that there were enormous shifts in the edge with the four aces out. It was uh, terrible for the player. Uh, uh, there was a disadvantage of between 2 and 3%. With the four twos out, it shifted in the favors player. And with the four fives out, it shifted to around almost 3% uh, in favor of the player. So there was this enormous shift back and forth. And I said, well, it's obvious what to do now. Uh, make a system for keeping track of the cards that's manageable in the casino. And then bet big when I have the edge and bet small when they have the edge. There might be an alternate reality where card counting never really becomes a thing. Thorpe's initial work was an academic paper. Well, lots of papers are written by academics and don't even generate a yawn from the public. But according to Thorpe, the casinos mocked him. Some casinos even boasted that they sent limos for suckers like him. They basically taunted him into what came next. I decided that with the ridicule that I needed to go out and prove the system worked, so two uh, gambling types, wealthy businessmen, bankrolled me for a test. Uh, we turned $10,000 into $21,000 in about 20 hours of serious play. And then Life magazine ran a story, uh, which was an 11-page story with pictures that put Beat the Dealer on the bestseller list. And then lots of players came out to try to beat the game. Ed Thorpe did his work on one of the old massive computers that fills a room. But in the 70s and 80s, computers became much smaller and much more available, and that had a big impact for gamblers. It allowed analysts like Peter Griffin and Stanford Wong to run their own blackjack numbers and build on Thorpe's ideas. But gamblers also took computers into the casinos. A group of PhD students from UC Santa Cruz made a computer to beat roulette, and blackjack players also made wearable computers. This is Mark Billings talking about using a computer to do something called shuffle tracking. Um, I was playing at the Sands. It was a four-deck game. And the count just went up and up and up. And I kept raising my bet rate. And at the time, you know, I, I didn't have a very big bankroll. So I, I made some of the biggest bets I'd ever made in my life. And what happened was we got to the cut card, which means that they stopped dealing, of course. And the count was still plus 20. And so I just stared at the cards when the dealer took the cards out of the shoe to shuffle. I just stared at those cards that she pulled out of the shoe, which, of course, had 10 extra 10s and aces in it. And I just thought if I could, if I could only, 
you know, if I can only play that packet. And then I thought, well, I, maybe I can follow where that packet's going to go. And so you can understand the idea is to try to track clumps of cards through the shuffle. And back in those days, the shuffles very often were very, very simple, fairly readily trackable shuffles. So you can actually see, okay, these are the cards that went into the discard rack in this order. They took them out and they shuffled them in a certain way. And so here are the clumps of cards that got mixed in with these other clumps of cards. And here's where you have a nice chunk of cards, maybe a 50 or a 60 card clump that consists of more tens and aces than they should. What Mark is talking about is basically predictive analytics. It's kind of crazy because even today, if you read a list of the hottest careers, predictive analytics will be on that list. But gamblers were doing this stuff in the 80s. You know, what happened was we uh, we had this we had these little computers that we built they were they ran at one megahertz they had thirty k of memory thirty k not thirty megabytes not thirty gigabytes they had thirty k and it was extraordinary we thought well how are we going to use this up it was terrific and so and we had and we had built our own shoes and the shoes only had two buttons it was one button in the right shoe and one button in the left shoe. And since we needed about, I don't know, 16 or 17 different commands, what we did was we had overlapping button commands. So, for example, of course, we could have a left, we could have a right, we could have a left down, hold it down and right, we could have a right down, hold it down while you push the left down, we had a right, hold it down, left, left, right, left, right, right, all these different, you know, series of commands with only two buttons. I mean, we just needed shoes with big toes. And then we would take our Dremel motor tool out with a saw and we would saw them open and put the toes, you know, put the buttons in the toes and glue them back together. And, and they, I mean, admittedly, especially at this remove, they look terrible. I must admit they didn't look very good. When some casinos figured out to look for the guys in the funny shoes, the computers were hidden in other places, like fake prosthetic arms. This is Jake Jacobs. When we were doing the stuff at the table, uh, you'd usually have a three-man play. So you'd put uh, a uh, big player at first base playing two spots, and then the input would be sitting in the middle of the table with her fake arm, and then we'd get a guy on third base. And the third baseman would be wearing the belt that got the signals and would signal the big player on how much to bet. But they had another duty. You know, with the with the computer, it was predicting uh, whether small cards, medium cards, big cards, or really big cards were going to be coming next. So you you I mean you actually didn't know what was coming, and so the uh, the third baseman would, depending on what was coming, either avoid taking cards or would take cards. Eventually, Nevada made it a felony to use a computer in the casino, which meant that it was time to take the show on the road. This is Daryl Purpose. He and Richard Munchkin took a shuffle-tracking computer to Europe, and they ran into a little trouble when one of the casinos knew something was up, but they couldn't quite figure out what was going on, so the casino called Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard, after a long interrogation, they followed us back and searched our car, and they searched the hotel. And the only place they didn't search was my ankle, where the computer was strapped. And towards the end of searching the hotel, you know, they looked under mattresses, they looked under the towels in the bathroom. And, and both Munchkin and I were aware of this briefcase that we knew had everything in it. It had these huge lithium batteries, all our IDs, all our records, all our scouting reports, you know, uh, backup computers. And they didn't open it, didn't open it, didn't open it. And they finally looked everything, and they began to sort of believe our story. And... uh 
you know, just when they seemed about done and they hadn't looked in the briefcase, they walked over and they opened the case and they looked, but they didn't see. And they closed the briefcase and said, okay, you know, um, you're all right. Many of the wearable blackjack computers were built by a Silicon Valley engineer named Keith Taft. I think it's worth appreciating the ingenuity required to build a computer, write the code to predict which cards are coming, invent an input system, and get this computer into the casino. This is all illegal today, but I think it would be a mistake to overlook the achievement simply because the casinos got the law changed. This was really an incredible time in Vegas, and Gambling with an Edge host, Richard Munchkin, was in the middle of it all. Richard and his friends were playing blackjack before Wall Street owned the casinos. So he saw a side of Vegas that most of us only see in the movies. He certainly was affected when two guys I knew were beaten within an inch of their life at the Horseshoe downtown, and I tended to stay out of there for some time. Um, now, again, this is back, you know, 30 years ago and things have changed. I, you know, had another friend who was, they threatened to pull his eye out with a pliers at the Imperial Palace. Although uh, the Imperial Palace, I actually really liked uh, beating because the owner back then was a Nazi and, you know, had a, a Hitler memorial room with a lot of Nazi memorabilia in it. So I did take extra pleasure beating that particular casino but the only one that i remember staying away from because of the because of was the horseshoe back when the binion still had it richard often says that counting cards is easy but getting away with it is hard here he is talking about his time playing in korea in the 80s there were a ton of card counters playing there but somehow they had gotten word that if you didn't bet more than $200, the casino wouldn't throw you out. I went in one day and there were – I counted. I went through the casino counting and I counted 40 guys that were all there betting up to a max of two hands of 200. And I went back and I called my teammates and I said, this is just not going to go on. They're not going to – you can't sustain this 40 guys who are all making a living playing eight or 10 hours a day. So we kind of strategized at that point and decided that what we would do is recruit Japanese as big players because Japan uh, hadn't crashed yet. And all of the big action in, in Korea was coming from the Japanese. You know, we started playing with our Japanese big players. You know, we lasted three years. You know, it was over a million dollars out of one casino in Seoul plus another half a million at the other casinos around Korea. Bob Dancer is Richard Munchkin's co-host on Gambling with an Edge. Like Richard, Bob has been gambling for most of his life. Yeah, I kept coming back to, to gambling. Um, would periodically go broke, go out and uh, get a real job, and then always wanted to come back. And uh, fortunately, I, I moved to Vegas in 93, and have been able to stay here forever. Bob's autobiography, Million Dollar Video Poker, tells the story about six months where he won a million dollars at the MGM Grand. But when Bob moved to Vegas in the early 90s, he had a very small bankroll, quickly got barred from a bunch of casinos for counting cards, and he was in his 40s by then. His dream of being a professional gambler 
must have seemed like it was hanging by a thread. One of the things Bob did to keep his dream alive was to become an expert in what he calls low roller plays. The promotion was every time you emptied a hopper, they would pay you 20 bucks. Now, these were coin dropping machines. So my strategy was to, when I got there, to put a couple of hundred dollar bills into the machine, play one or two hands, and then cash out. If this didn't empty it all out, I'd put in another hundred or two and hit the button again and out it would come. And eventually the machine would go dry. They would come and fill up the machine and pay me my 20 bucks. And I would do this in four, three or four or five separate parts of the casino. So I'd find the corners of the casino and do it three or four or five times a shift. I'd go home, come back eight hours later, do it again, go home, come back, do it eight hours later. This was worth between $250 and $300 a day for essentially zero risk. And for somebody with a low bankroll trying to build a bankroll up so they could stay in Vegas, uh, this was a godsend. Bob says that earlier in his life, he would have regular jobs, like being a computer programmer. And he was so mediocre at these jobs that when his company needed to reduce headcount, Bob was the easy cut to make. It's an interesting study in human motivation to note that when Bob found something he was really interested in, he put in uncommon effort, the kind of effort you'd see from an all-star employee. Professional video poker is a mix of memorizing a long list of strategies for every variation of the game and then scouting for opportunities where the return of the machine plus the casino marketing offers will exceed 100%. This was a barn-sized building on Las Vegas Boulevard uh, right at the base of Sunset. And they had half-hourly drawings where the expected return, if you were called, was about $60. One of the drums was strictly for play between 2 a.m. and 7 a.m., so I would show up at midnight and start earning tickets. There were 11 drawings of two names each, and sometimes I'd be called nine or ten times. There's not many people in this drawing, and so nine or ten times, or it's worth $60 a piece, is pretty good money. For whatever reason, they let me do this almost every night for a year and a half. On this one play, it was over 200,000 gain back in 94, which was for somebody who had started with a bankroll of $6,000. This was, this was big money. The next person we'll hear from is Mickey Krim, and it's kind of hard to give Mickey the explanation he probably deserves. Mickey is what some people might call a slot hustler or a slot vulture, but in Mickey's words, he's just a hustler. He goes from casino to casino looking for machines where the jackpot has built up enough to make the game profitable. It's a lifestyle that Mickey might be uniquely suited to. Let's see, by the time I was 15, I had had gone to 11 different public schools. I was passed off from relative to relative and and this sort of thing. And it's just something that started at a young age. And I I settled down here and there with women in periods and stuff. But when that was over with, I just hit the road again. I've been on the road all my life. And I still live in hotels today. And and the reason why, uh, you know, as as a gambler, I never know when when a play is going to be up and I have to move somewhere else. And one of the things I don't like about maintaining an apartment is paying a double nut. It's like if I had an apartment in Laughlin and the big play is in Reno, paying to stay in Reno and Laughlin at the same time. 
I just traveled with one rollaway suitcase, and, uh, you know, when it starts bulging, I just start looking for stuff to throw out of it. Mickey is a fixture in the online message boards where Advantage slots are discussed. When a question is posed as to whether a particular machine can be beaten, Mickey chimes in using algebra and thousands of carefully recorded spin results to say things like, the base return of the machine is X, and the mini jackpot is worth Y, and the mega jackpot is worth Z, and that all adds up to a machine return of 102%. This all comes from someone who spent years on the road hopping freight trains. His start in advantage gambling came when he was homeless. He hitchhiked his way through the California desert, which sounds miserable, and ultimately landed in Laughlin. You know, I, I fell in the Laughlin. I didn't have any money in October '96. I didn't. I didn't have enough money to rub two quarters together. But I did a little credit hustling, and then I picked up on a uh, a low roller advantage slot game called piggy bank. And then all of a sudden, I jump started a bankroll. And and then I started seriously studying full pay deuces, wild and flush attack. Okay, and I was playing advantage slots in those games, but I was mainly paying for the rooms. I didn't know how to work the comp systems. Um, a friend of mine, Bill Hartman, told me to go get a P.O. box at the Riverside in Laughlin. And I, I am all around about that. And, uh, but he told me, he goes, look, man, you gotta go, you gotta go down and get this box. You don't know what you're missing out on. So I go down and get this box. I have my address changed all up and down the river to it. And I go on about my business playing these games. And all of a sudden, here comes all this mail, you know, with, um, hotel offers, promotional offers, bounce back checks, all this. And the more it went along, the more I learned the vagaries of each slot club and how to work them. And uh, basically, this was what was going on over a four-year period. It just evolved into a thing where I was getting a total free ride. Uh, it's a kickback place, and I, you know, and I kind of enjoy just moseying around and taking life easy. And uh, and don't call it work; just call it something you do. Don't call it work. Don't treat it like work. Just mosey around and do it. You know, I'd start my day out like uh, go down and get a cup of coffee. Uh, Make a lamp around the advantage slots. Might go play a little poker. Then I go run my video poker action, and then that night I might play a little more poker, and then go to bed or whatever. Just take life easy. You're on the river. You got the river walk. Beautiful view out there. It's a great kickback place, and it's it's convenient compared to the strip. Maybe one way to think about advantage play in a casino is there are two ways to come out ahead. You can either beat the game. Or you can find a promotion that's valuable enough to overcome the house edge. This is a guy named Vagabond who travels the world looking for good situations. In one country, he found a promotion called a loss rebate. Just as luck would run, I lost 8000 that that session. And some person at the table who was just being friendly recommended that I take the discount. And I, I was like, well, yeah, of course. Well, what's the discount? I, I, I like the discount. The casino came over and said, well, just sign this. And they handed me a 10% rebate. I was like, well, that's that's great. And when I went back a few months later, I realized, well, if I lose over 10000 in a session, it's a 15% loss rebate. And that, you know, all the casinos offer this, but they just don't talk about it. I was out there for three weeks. And the first week I, I took a beating. Um, I was down over $60,000 in the first week. I experienced the greatest swing in my life. After the first week of losing, they were very, very comfortable with me. I, I stayed at the hotel, a very nice four-star hotel for the next two weeks, comped, had my greatest positive swing. I won just over $100,000 in five days. And so I, I went from minus 60, I recovered all the loss. And then on top of that, I, I made 70. 
you know, they, they back me off that table with the special rules. You know, I, I can still play blackjack there, just not with the redoubles. And, you know, they figured I'm, I'm too good for that game. I didn't immediately understand lost rebates. It just seemed like big deal. You're still losing. But here's an example that might help. Imagine a coin flipping contest where heads means you win $100 and tails means you lose $100. Now, if every time you lose, you get $15 back in a rebate, what started out as a fair game is actually in your favor. That's a simplification, but it's close enough to get the point across. Vagabond puts in a lot of work to find his edges. Uh, well, I, I definitely take extensive notes. I, I take pride in that. I try to look at you know, every single game, recently every single machine, table, dealer, even what cards they're using, You know, who's the manufacturer, shuffling procedures, every, everything I can, I can record. It's uh, definitely helped me find advantages down the road as, as my games have progressed. You know, as I've learned more and more advantages, I reference my notes and it's like, well, well, where, where have I seen that game and at, at what limits were they and, you know, what were the specific dealing procedures? You know, you have to look at every every single thing and try to take notes surreptitiously, either in the bathroom or away from the camera so they don't know you're you're actually studying their casino. This next gambler says he has a rule of thumb to find casinos desperate for players. It's basically look for places most people are afraid to travel to. This is BJ Traveler. Any country has civil war, they're dangerous. Everybody don't want to go there. If the country has casinos, the casino offer very good terms. So you have 50 casinos in Colombia with very good terms because the problem is that I went to Colombia about 10 times. I, I was robbed $24,000 under gunpoint, but I made 10 times more than that. So it's a, a tax. It turns out that BJ Traveler is not alone in finding opportunity in Colombia. And he's also not alone in running into trouble. This is Molded Truths again. I show up at this place, and it turns out it's not an $800 an hour promotion. They had doubled the table maximum, so it's now a $1,600 an hour promotion. So I, I just go in. I'm like, okay, I, I you know had some food, got ready to go. I went in, and I played for maybe 16 hours straight, something like that, 14 hours. Oh, yeah, 14 hours straight it was. And I clobbered the living hell out of this thing. I was just flat betting. There was no card counting. You know, you can just flat bet certain things like this when you have the strong edge like that. And it really wasn't much effort at all. And I, uh, by the end of the day, I, I had clobbered them for about 90 million pesos. It's about $30,000 US. And I basically cleared out the entire casino cage. You know how like some blackjack players, they talk about, oh, I cleared the rack of chips. No, I cleared the entire cashier's cage of pesos. And then all of a sudden, like I'm surrounded by this Colombian um, casino owner and some enormous like Colombian goon, <laughs> you know, like casino guards. They're like, oh, can we talk to you? And like, I walk over a couple steps to talk to him. And before I know, it, I'm like forced into this back room. You know, I basically, I stood my ground with the guy. I'm like, you know, I, you know, I won this fair and square. This is what you offered. What's your problem? So I'm in this office. They had shut the door behind me and the goon was blocking the door. They tried to take the money back. He's like, I want all the money back that you won. They couldn't get that, but they stole uh, the chips and some money from me. So 
it was basically like if you give us this back we'll let you go and if you don't you don't know you know things could happen to you kind of thing you know it's a very like Colombia is a very dangerous country <laughs> you know as we were talking I sat there I'm like well you know people know I'm here but you know nobody really knows I'm exactly here and you know what could happen and and I'm like you know what it's just it's just money We're hearing about the natural ramifications of the casino business model because of what happens over time to the best customers, the casinos are always looking for new blood, and that can mean exploitable promotions. This is Charles Handy explaining a promotion that he played. They basically were taking um, part of a pay schedule, and they'll say, okay, for a period of time, we're going to triple payouts. Somebody had had uh, put this giant banner called customized and printed up at the printers and things like that and had it in front and supposed to last all month. And I mean, it really wasn't a very well-designed promotion because nobody could lose money at it. I mean, your regular players couldn't lose money. And so we were like, wow, we, you know, the day this starts, we got to hit it. We got to make sure that we're there. This uh, particular venue didn't open table games until like 10 a.m. or something. And so and it was on a Monday, and so we're like, okay, we got to get up, make sure we're there, everybody together. And then, anyway, we're late getting there, and we've, we're like, oh, boy, we'll see how bad this is. And we walk in, and no one's there. We started playing, and the first the first time I hit one of the payout hands, the dealer's like, oh, good job. And he's like, adding, he's like, oh, how much does that pay? He starts adding it up, and he's like, you know, 6000 something. He's like, this ain't lasting long. You know, it's one of those deals where it was like, well, okay, how much do we want to win? This isn't a particularly big place. And, you know, I... I I don't want there to be, you know, hassles cashing me out or things like that. And uh, so we ended up, I was like, all right, I'm up like 25000 or something. And I'm like, I'm worried about it. It's Monday morning. I don't even know if they got new money in there. Then what do we do? do ask for checks? I mean, that's happened. Uh, other people may have pushed it. I decided that was good enough. And I left with 25000 Another team left with 25000 I normally don't feel bad when we win from a casino, but I did feel bad because they tore down this nice banner that, and I thought, man, I kind of feel bad for the guy that put in hours to create this banner and advertising, <laughs> get it printed up, and they just ripped it down. The proliferation of casinos and table games means that sometimes casinos are offering games they don't actually understand. And it's easy to see how that's possible because the probabilities are complicated. This is Cartwright explaining his process to find these games. So I do a combinatorial analysis to get like the exact house edge, and then my software will actually generate a basic strategy chart and just output it, so I can paste that into a, a spreadsheet that'll color code it makes it very easy. And then what I do is I write a simulator to then validate the combinatorial analysis and to try out various betting strategies if, if it makes sense for that game. Okay, so that was a side bet on blackjack, where you get paid if you have a winning hand that totals 21. For instance, if you get a natural blackjack, that's a two-card 21. Assuming it beats the dealer, then you would get paid six to one on your side bet, um, all the way up to a seven-card or more 21 uh, got paid 25. Cartwright's sophisticated analysis yielded a simple strategy. It was basically just keep hitting until you either get 21 or you bust. I mean, I think my favorite hand, I had a six card 19, so I hit and I drew an ace. 
and so I had a seven card twenty, and I hit, and I drew another ace. So I made a eight card twenty one with back to back aces. Well, when I was first playing, some of the casinos their highest denomination chip was a hundred dollars. So in those casinos, it was I mean it, it was getting a little out of hand how full the pockets got, you know. And so I just had stacks of chips. There was really not a big way to avoid it, and walked out with you know racked chips. And one of the things about this game that was especially interesting is that it was basically just a broken game. So there was no card counting or any other sort of advanced strategy or technique going on. It was just play this basic strategy chart and win. Cartwright found that game through another gambler, which is an important point to make. A number of the people we've heard from played on teams or had mentors or heard about promotions from other players or were bankrolled by other gamblers. I guess it's not surprising that being a professional gambler actually requires a professional approach, and that means networking. This is RX Gamble talking about how meeting people in an online forum helped her learn to find dealers that show their whole card. It has a much larger edge than card counting. Well, on BJ21, uh, I haven't been on the site for a while, but people were pretty generous with information and there was talk about hole carding which seemed really hard and really impossible to find a dealer that would show their hole card and i was card counting and i had met i had made some friends from bj21 and i met them in real life so one of these friends that a lot of old school players will know is el burrow and el burrow was a counter and he had turned into a hole carder and he took me to the horseshoe one day and he had me stand behind a table and he said, just look. So I looked and this dealer at the horseshoe flashed her entire card to center field. And I was like, Oh my God, the the heavens <laughs> opened up. I couldn't believe it. And there was actually a player there. Um, crazy Pete that some people will remember. And crazy Pete was sitting in center field and he looked and he glared at us and I didn't know who he was. And Alberto was like, we got to go. But just seeing it, knowing that it was possible, I started, I just started scouting like crazy. I would work in Palm Springs for five days after swing shift, I would drive to Vegas. I would hardly sleep. I would work for two days. And then I'd drive back. And I did that for like a year. I didn't obviously quit my job until I learned how to hold card and I had an inventory of games. I wouldn't recommend anybody quit their job to count cards. At least definitely not now. I'm sure someone out there is like crushing counting cards. There's always somebody, but I definitely wouldn't recommend it. And so I waited till I was more advanced and then I quit my job. The longest running blackjack teams have been managed by a guy named Tommy Highland. Tommy has played blackjack since the 70s and has run teams for much of the time since then. So he's seen the good and bad of having teammates. I had to make all kinds of rules eventually. I mean, these people fell in love with their act. They thought they, uh, you know, had a great act. In actuality, they were playing way less an aggressive a game as they should have been playing just to make sure they didn't get thrown out along with their relatives out of the three rooms that they uh, had gotten comp for, you know. And uh, they had their whole family and their neighbors there, uh, you know. And meanwhile, uh, they're losing, you know, 50 or 100,000 and, uh, you know, as as an investor, uh, I would get a little irritated, uh, tell them coming back and saying, Oh, what a great time everybody was having. <laughs> and I'm wondering, uh, you know, how's this guy, uh, playing at this casino all this time, getting all these comps and everybody else has gotten thrown out of this casino, you know, things like that would happen. But if teammates can establish trust, the benefits can be substantial. 
This is Mr. Yuck. And I would say for us, in addition to uh, the benefit of reduced variance, I would say the bigger benefit is it's twice as many people going out and scouting and twice as many people who can potentially analyze games. I can't tell you how many games where I that I've found where Charles has played it far more than I have. Some of the games that we've talked about, Charles found it, I did the analysis, and uh, we both were able to benefit. So the shared skill set, the combined skill set, I think that's actually a bigger benefit. Earlier, we heard from Yuck's partner, Charles Hondi. Here he is again, talking about a team play that hit a bump in the road. What was interesting, the first time we we played it, we decided, okay, um, we're going to go and we're going to bring in an, an, an Asian guy that that we knew, and he was going to be our, our big player. And he had really no casino experience, which is good, um, generally. I mean, I'd rather train somebody from scratch than have somebody that's already a degenerate gambler from experience. I kind of know this now. You know, he, he, he kind of trained him what to do and or how to play the game. And then we'll just kind of just sit back and watch what's happening. And so we're like, okay, and the, you know, just bet red chips and we'll see how this goes for now. And so we had given him a bankroll for the trip 5,000. And so he, he buys in, ends up buying in, I think like, all 5,000 and then asks for red. And so they're trying, he's they're like, well, can you, they're negotiating. Can you take some black? Can you take whatever? And they're trying to figure out what, and then I kind of went around the other side of the pit and the guy goes over the phone. I hear him call surveillance and he's like, I don't know what's up with this guy, but he means business. And so, yeah, they, he just started to play and we're shaking our heads going, Oh, we for, we didn't even think that he would do that. You know, we thought that he would go and, and buy in for all 5,000 and then bet $15. I think that falls under their, their, what do they call that? Just doesn't look right. Mr. Yuck has some realistic advice for anyone considering a career in the exciting world of casino gambling. One of the myths that a lot of people have uh, being a professional gambler is that you get to set your own schedule. And I have found that no matter what I'm doing, that that's not completely the case. If you're counting cards, uh, if the casino's too busy on a Friday night, you might not get a seat. If the casino's too dead, you're the only person they have to watch. Um, if you're doing a carnival game, you might have to pick the time that uh, your talented dealer is uh, working. And in machines, uh, you have, you know, the casino gets to decide when they're going to do point multipliers. They get to decide when they're going to do promotions. And I'm finding that I have to, to really optimize my time, I have to set my schedule around all of these different things that are set beyond my control. So I really, there might be more flexibility in terms of setting your schedule as a professional AP than there is uh, in other lines of work, but it's not you get to set your own schedule as some people might think. One thing I want to cover is a problem that might be inherent to what we're doing here which is using stories to illuminate the world of advantage play. Josh Axelrad can help us get at this issue. Josh won several hundred thousand dollars counting cards, then went broke playing poker, and wrote about it all in a book called Repeat Until Rich. The truth is, most people who buy beat the dealer. Most people who buy Bringing Down the House or buy... Uh, Ken Houston's books or Repeat Until Rich, my book, don't have any prayer of ever making, in fact, they're doing themselves harm. 
by learning about card counting and blackjack because for most people what all of these gambling systems including the totally legitimate ones for most people what those amount to is a pretext and that would to the extent that you put forth that pretext without very clear warnings and disclosures to the extent that you do that you're doing marketing on behalf of the casinos and that's something that you'll never catch me doing this is richard munchkin ever since i first started uh, i had friends who were professional gamblers who used to say there is a fine line between a professional gambler and a degenerate the difference is we have an advantage when we play but there are often some of those same parts of people's personality that feed into both As humans, we're attracted to the allure of the unexpected, the uncertainty that you could win when you're the underdog or even lose when you're the favorite. And just because you might have an advantage doesn't make you immune to the brain chemistry. Let's listen to Teddy's story. He graduated from law school and then spent a year and a half playing video poker and living in comp hotel rooms. Well, I've been to every casino in... Clark County, I think. And I remember when I first came out here, my first trip, I stayed stayed at Terribles and paid $20 a night. And that was the last time I ever paid for a room in Las Vegas. Because every time I came back, they kept sending me stuff to, you know, four free nights, you know, come stay with us. Technically, I was homeless. Uh, That is true. Uh, it's funny to think that way, but, uh, you know, you know, never know where your next room is coming from. Never know where your next meal is coming from. I never had any problem getting that, but you know, it's just being in that state is, is, is living a fantasy life. Well, first of all, I, I would only play at Gold Coast if they had a multiplier day. So if it was five times points or seven times points, I would play pretty hard up to the, uh, I think they allow you what 10,000 points in a day so $10,000 coin in um so I would play that and if it was just a normal regular day and I had to give them some negative play I would just do two or three thousand dollars coin in on you know jacks are better or not so ugly deuces and that was enough to you know keep me in their good graces and keep the room offers coming and uh you know do the same thing at the other Boyd casinos Suncoast Fremont downtown they have their own marketing department so you get comps from each one of them uh, so I came with about a four thousand to five thousand dollar bankroll and had a very very good run of luck. Hit a lot of royals, ran it up to um, about eleven or twelve thousand. When I get a big bankroll, that's kind of bad news for me. So uh, I played a lot of craps with high odds multiples. Had a pretty negative uh, variance streak. Um, so I'm you know back down to normal Joe level. Uh, I'm not playing currently, but trying to uh, just uh, grind at the 8 to 5 job. Teddy was diligent about playing video poker in a way to gain an advantage through the slot club benefits. But he admits that he got pretty lucky. Then he goes a step further to admit that he played craps when he didn't even have the pretense of an advantage. There's another issue we should address related to Josh Axelrad's claim that most people who buy beat the dealer are doing themselves harm. Maybe you could call it the narrative failure. This talk about advantage play could all just be survivor bias. The gamblers that won lived to tell their tale. The ones that lost kept their mouth shut. So even a mathematical advantage like card counting 
gets overblown because the storytellers, the mythmakers, also had luck on their side. A clear-eyed assessment would admit to the dangers Josh is talking about, but would also acknowledge the potential for some people to find meaning in their lives through advantage play. We've just listened to gamblers talk about solving puzzles, being creative, making discoveries, being diligent, overcoming obstacles, being tenacious, and ultimately choosing their own path. The horse better, Bill Benter, had this to say about his time playing blackjack. The edge, when you can achieve it, is so narrow that you have to do just about everything right all of the time in order to to realize that edge. And you have to be able to do that for months or even years under very stressful conditions, which, you know, is a great uh, training ground for for virtues of um, discipline and hard work and and, um, thrift, keeping records, um, you know, uh, etc. You know, I I think also it it, it kind of shows you that um, knowledge, um, by that I mean book knowledge, uh, can give you power. You know, that, that reading these arcane strategy tables developed by computer and by eminent mathematicians and committing that knowledge to memory and, and using it gives you a certain power in the real world. The MIT blackjack teams were managed by a guy named John Chang. Actually, he's married to Lori Chang, who we heard from earlier. Anyway, John said something that I think you can see in a lot of the people we've heard from. I'm ill-suited to uh, working in a corporate environment. (laughs) And it's not like, oh, yeah, well, you know, because I've been doing this for so long, I've developed that kind of personality. I think I was not like that from the beginning. And I realized that. So, you know, when I was at MIT, I'm looking at, oh, I can go work for HP. I'm like, I don't really want to do that. And this is Richard Munchkin one more time. When I was 13, my father was a lawyer in Chicago. And one summer, I worked in his law office, and I would take the train down to the loop. And the train station, you had to come out of the train station and go to either side, and there were bridges across the Chicago River. And I came out, and the people were, there were just thousands of people like ants crossing those bridges from the train station. And I said to myself, I will never, ever do this with my life. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. All of the clips are courtesy of the Gambling with an Edge podcast. You can subscribe to Gambling with an Edge anywhere you get your podcasts. They also have a Facebook page. You can find them on the web at gamblingwithanedge.com.